The title of my message is Worship the King, and I'll give you the main point up front. God reveals his king to the world so that he may be worshipped. I'll say it again. God reveals his king to the world so that he might be worshipped. And in view of that reality, we have two goals together this morning. The first goal is beholding God's revelation of his king in this passage. We have to see what God is attempting to say about his king, who he is, where he is, and why it matters. And then our second goal, we must respond to that revelation with worship, worshiping the king. And so that's what we're going to look at today. With that said, we can turn our attention to the text. And the first point on your bulletin should read, God reveals his king to the world through a star. God reveals his king to the world through a star. And let's look at verse 1. It begins by saying, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. We'll stop there. Imagine for a moment that you had no Bible background. You have no knowledge of the Bible. You're not even aware of what came before this in chapter 1. Maybe some of you are, that, that description actually fits you. At first glance, it might appear to us that the king that we are supposed to see is Herod. After all, Matthew literally describes him as Herod the king. And so we ask, who is Herod the king? Here, Matthew refers to Herod the Great, who was the first of six Herods that you will see in your Bible, if you read it carefully. First of six Herods you'll find in your Bible. In one sense, Herod was a king. Josephus records that the Roman emperor Mark Antony persuaded the Roman Senate to make him a king. And not only that, Tacitus records that Caesar Augustus enlarged Herod's Herod's privileges as king, which eventually came to include Judea, when Herod captured Jerusalem in 37 BC. So that's who Herod the king is, just a little bit about him. And if we were to fast forward to today, I would say the world remembers Herod the Great primarily for two reasons. The first reason is his massive architectural undertakings, which would include the reconstruction and remodeling of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which was a fabulous project, took almost more than 46 years, as they would say to Jesus later, the Pharisees. But this is the temple that Jesus would visit during his life. So Herod had a hand in building that temple, and of course many other building projects as well. But second, the world remembers Herod for his tyrannical rule. Listen to how the theologian Howard Voss describes Herod. He says this, During his administration as king, that's Herod, he proved himself to be exceedingly crafty, jealous, cruel, and revengeful. He had nine or ten wives, and on the merest suspicion, put to death his favorite wife and also her sons. And at last, when on his own deathbed, just five days before he died, he ordered one of his sons to be slain. And I think we could agree that if Herod was the king that God had intended us to see in this passage, we could definitely say that he was not worthy of worship. Thankfully for us, we know that God's king was not Herod the king, but Jesus, the one that verse tells us was the one having just been born in Judea. So the proof of that, that Jesus is in fact Herod's king, can be made clear by Matthew in the very first verse of his book. If you want to flip over, you can look at the very beginning. It should only be a page or so over. The first verse of his gospel reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And the titles that Matthew is ascribing to Jesus here prove definitively and establish that he is the king that God is intending to reveal to the world. I just want to look at these titles quickly, so we'll look at these briefly. First, Jesus is said to be the Christ. Now, Christ is a term that has the equivalence of the Old Testament or the Hebrew word Messiah, both of which mean anointed or the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, when God raised up a king, he was anointed with oil as a sign that they had been chosen for that task of ruling over his people. And just to give you a reminder of that, 1 Samuel 16. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Which leads us right into the second title. Jesus is said to be the son of David. And if you know your Old Testament history, King David would go on to be the greatest king in Israel's history. And despite his serious shortcomings, and we know that he had some, God promised David that one of his descendants would reign as king before him forever and that he would possess an eternal kingdom. I'll remind you of 2 Samuel. God said, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when Jesus is said to be the son of David, it reveals that he is a legitimate candidate to fulfill this promise. And then finally, Jesus is said to be the son of Abraham. Abram was an idol worshiper until God called him in Genesis 12, changed his name and made him a great promise. He said, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation that would eventually become the nation of Israel and that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So by virtue of being the son of Abraham, Jesus is not only a candidate to bring God's blessing to the nation of Israel, but also to the whole world. And that is going to factor crucially in our passages we'll see later. But let's just recap what we've got so far. Jesus is God's king, born in Judea during the reign of Herod the king. Two kings, one region. And it is in this politically loaded introduction and in this situation that Matthew introduces the event that is going to bring all of this to a head. Look back to verse 1. He directs our, in chapter 2, he directs our attention back and he says, okay, so Herod the king, and behold, meaning look here, see this, don't miss this, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. So Matthew wants us to start to get a vivid picture of what this would have looked like in our minds. Now, we know that Jerusalem for Israel was the center of Jewish life. And the citizens there were used to people coming from all over the world, either Jews or God, Gentile-fearing men, coming from all over the world to Jerusalem to worship God on various festivals and to worship him in the temple. However, there's no indication in our passage today that there was a festival being celebrated during this time meaning it was likely just a normal day when wise men show up in town. So picture this. Uh, despite the fact that, oh, and just one note here. Despite the fact that Hallmark and uh, Veggie Tales and Christmas songs try to convince us that there were only three wise men, uh, they actually the scriptures don't tell us how many wise, them, wise men there were. And in fact, it's actually likely that there were more of them given the scope of the journey and for practical reasons like safety. So we don't know how many wise men there are. There are probably more. But imagine for a moment. You're doing your daily chore. You are going to the market for your mom, whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden, wise men are going around the city with all of their animals, with their personal belongings. They've got valuable gifts with them. They've got strange accents, strange clothing, strange hairdos. Everything about them is strange, and it would get your attention. 
Now, I, I actually recently had an experience like this. So I was at the airport. I was waiting to board a flight, you know, probably a couple hundred people there. And all of a sudden, through our midst, walk a gathering of nuns right through. And it, naturally, it sort of grabbed all of our attention. Right? The crowd kind of got quiet. It just, it's not something you're used to seeing. There's this procession of nuns going through the, going through the crowd. And perhaps it got our attention because one of the nuns was talking on a cell phone and and I just, maybe I just didn't expect her to have that with the whole vow to poverty, the possessions thing. I'm just not sure. So don't ask me about my knowledge of nuns. But anyway, needless to say, it got my attention. And I think that might help you see what this might have looked like when Matthew gets our attention and says, hey, here are the wise men. And then he tells us why they're there. Look at verse 2. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. A couple of things that we need to see here in verse 2. First, the wise men saw this star in the east, very far away, which is significant because we know from Scripture that God can do geographically isolated miracles. And when I thought of this, what came to mind was during the plagues that God sent on Egypt. You remember he sends the plague of darkness, and it is dark everywhere in Egypt, except where? Where the Jews are. Where the Jews are, where Israel is, there is light, but everywhere else there is darkness. So the star could have been a phenomenon like that to let the people of Israel know, hey, look, here's the star, something has happened. But no, we read that this star was visible in the east. So this isn't geographically isolated. This is a big deal. So it's on display for other parts of the world. And these wise men were skilled enough in astrology to notice this star when it came up. They saw it. Something new had happened. It wasn't on their carefully charted star charts or whatever they had, and they didn't miss it. That's important. So this star that was sent from God became one way that God revealed his king to the world. So that's the first thing we need to see. Second, the wise men refer to the star in relation to Jesus. Do you see that? We saw his star. This wasn't just any star. This star communicated to them that the king of the Jews had been born. Which makes me wonder, how did pagan holy men living hundreds of miles away, recognize that this star that had just appeared, that had just risen, was the king of the Jews star specifically. Well, we're actually not exactly sure how they knew. The scripture doesn't tell us how they knew. So everything I say next here could just be a theory. But I'll just, we'll play it out a little bit. We do know that eastern kingdoms like Babylon had access to Jewish scriptures as a result of Israel's time in exile. Right, you remember the prophet Daniel? He's sitting there in Daniel chapter 9, and it says that he was reading the book of, Isaac, of Jeremiah. Right? He's reading the book of Jeremiah with regard to his time in exile. So it's possible that they had the Jewish scriptures, and it would not have just been enough, though, to have the scriptures. Right? It couldn't have just been in an archive somewhere. It had to have been something that they actually looked over, read carefully, looked to see, is this rising star marking something that is happening in the world and happening specifically with respect to God's chosen people, Israel, as we consult these Hebrew scriptures? So the logical follow-up question might be, well, if that is the case, then what scripture could it possibly have been that alerted them to the rising of this star and this newborn king? Again, We're not really sure. But one scripture that has been suggested by commentators, and I'll read for you just because it's encouraging to hear, uh, comes from a text that was made uh, a prophecy, a messianic prophecy by Balaam in Numbers 24. Let me read it for you. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
And then this is it. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So whether we're not sure if this is it, it may not be. But at the very least, this passage has all three elements, right? A star in in Judah that signifies a ruler. So we can't be sure, but it's possible. Regardless of how they found out, though, they made it to Jerusalem, right? And that's why we're talking about them here. So they made it to Jerusalem. And here's the final thing that we should note on verse 2, is that the wise men came to worship this newly born king. Think about that. When they come to worship, that is no small purpose. They're coming to give him the honor that he is due. And in order to do that, it would take a tremendous sacrifice on their part to be able to travel this distance to do it. So we consider the scope of this journey, these men traveling from the east, and we don't know specifically where they're coming from, but we can get maybe an idea of how long this would have taken when we look back to Ezra, when he recounts his return from exile back to Jerusalem. It says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 9, that with the good hand of the Lord upon them, okay, that means everything's going well. The wheel doesn't break on your carriage. Your animal doesn't get sick and die. With everything going well, with God's hand of blessing, it took exactly four months for them to get from the east to Jerusalem. So we could say, if the situation is similar, that this could have been approximately an eight-month round-trip journey. Think about that for a second. Is there anything in the world today that you would travel four months to go see? And not just like four months in a boat or on a plane. I'm talking by foot. Is there anything in the world you would travel four months to see? I, I, asked, my question, I asked that question myself all week. I could, the only answer I'd come up with was my immediate family, if I had to. I would go see my immediate family. It would take four months. That would be a huge commitment of resources and time, wouldn't it? So I think that gives us the magnitude of this. These wise men were determined to come to bow down before this king and to give the king of the Jews, specifically, the worship that he deserved, which I think is a nice segue back into God's covenant promise to Abraham, isn't it? These men were Gentiles. We would not expect them to be the ones who are coming to see the king, right? We would expect Israelites to be the ones coming to see the king, and yet here are the Gentiles traveling to see the king. So, as foreign nations and peoples are beginning to respond to the presence of God's king in the world, the promise that all of the families of the earth would be blessed in Abraham is being realized. And I think that's a beautiful thing we need to see in this passage. So, um, just as God foretold through the prophet Isaiah concerning the Messiah, I love this verse. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. No, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. So the light of the star visible in the east is part of God's revelation to the world that his king had arrived and he was to be worshipped by all men. Okay? Which brings us to our second point on your bulletin. The first is that God reveals his king to the world through a star. Now God reveals his king to the world through the scriptures. And if if you're familiar with the Bible, the scriptures are one of the primary ways that God reveals his king to the world. But before we look more intensely at that, consider for a moment. You're a citizen of Jerusalem. You're living under the rule of Herod the king, whom you know to be a terrible, wicked, awful man. And a rumor starts to spread about the birth of a rival king. Do you feel particularly good at this moment? Does this sound like a situation that is going to end well for you? It doesn't to me. In fact, if this rumor ends up being true, I have a bad feeling that things are going to get ugly pretty quick. 
And sadly for Israel, we know that rivalry for the throne in Jerusalem was not a new phenomenon in their storied history. Just to recount one example, listen to King David's response when he was told about Absalom's growing rebellion. Listen to this. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom, after a new king. So, so proclaimed. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And we know by the end of that conflict, at least 20,000 men in Israel had died, including King David's son. Which brings us to Herod. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word here for troubled means deeply shaken. Something that is supposed to be at rest but is not. It is out of order. Shaken. Matthew uses this word in chapter 14 to describe the disciples when they see Jesus walking on water and thought it was a ghost. Terrified. And Jesus in John chapter 12 will use this word to express the state of his soul. Now my soul is troubled as he contemplates the hour of his suffering. So when you consider Herod in this deep state of trouble, combined with what we know about his character, this situation is not likely going to end well, which is why I believe the text says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Listen to what the Proverbs say. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Another. When the wicked, when the wicked rule, people groan. They know Herod's character. They can only imagine what it is going to mean for their way of life if this rumor is true. So Herod is troubled, but despite being troubled, he doesn't waste any time. He gets right to work, and verse 4 highlights that. Look at this, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Notice here, Matthew is emphasizing, there's a verb here that he uses that emphasizes Herod's inquiry. He is considering constantly. He is consumed. Where is this Christ to be born? And that is a specific question. He didn't just say, where is the king to be born? He says, where is the Christ to be born? So not only does Herod take the wise men at their word, but he also understands that their reference to the king of the Jews has a specific reference to the Messiah, namely the Christ. And he knows, listen to this, he knows that if you want information about the Christ, you're not going to just go out and ask random people for it, or go to foreign nations and ask them about it. No, if you want information about a Christ, the Christ, the only place you can go is the Jewish scriptures that talk about God's Messiah that he will send. So that's why he doesn't take a, his authority and sort of leverage a search party group of all the citizens, just like, go out and search for this king or I'll kill you and your whole family. No, he doesn't do that. Where does he go? He goes right to the chief priests and the scribes so that they can find the answer. And take a moment, just think about that to consider how satanic that is. Herod thinks to himself, if the rumors are true that God has sent his Messiah, then I will go to the scriptures where he proclaims his Messiah to get as much information as I can, not to worship him, so that I can destroy him and preserve my throne. That's what I want to do. I'm not going to the scriptures to worship him. I want to destroy him, and I go to the scriptures. should just give you just... Uh, a robust confidence in the veracity of scripture when even an enemy will consult the scriptures to figure out God's plan? And how prideful does a heart have to be to study God's plan of redemption 
in an attempt to prevent God's plan of redemption. I would say pretty proud. And I couldn't help but think, if only there had been a God-fearing scribe in the group with the courage to say something like, "Uh, King Herod, sir, respectfully, before we read you the prophecy concerning the birthplace of the Messiah, perhaps it would behoove you to hear another prophecy about this Messiah. Is he trembling as he lifts up his scroll? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him, them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. But of course that didn't happen, right? That didn't happen. No. So we move on to the next couple of verses. Look at verse five. So the scribes are all called together, and they bring back a response. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A couple of things interesting to note here. And the first interesting thing is that the chief priests and the scribes, when they're sent off to this task, under the pressure of a bloodthirsty king, They come up with the right answer. Isn't that interesting? The Jewish leaders are able to search the scriptures and to determine exactly where the Messiah would be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem. For their own words, it is written in scripture. Which shows us, I think, something very important about the Jewish leaders. You see, the problem with the Jewish leaders was not their hermeneutic, was it? They read this passage literally, grammatically, and historically, just as it was intended to be read. No, the problem with the Jewish leaders is not their hermeneutic, it's their heart. The expectation and anticipation of the Messiah, God's promised king, was central to Jewish life. And if they had hearts that loved the Lord and desired to see his plan for his people come to fruition after years of exile and pain and suffering, wouldn't you expect them to drop everything in Jerusalem? To drop the scroll, the holy scroll in their hands and to take the the five-mile journey to Bethlehem? Half a day's journey at least. In fact, if you Google it, I think you can walk to Bethlehem from Jerusalem in four hours. Think about that. Wise men from the east, four months. The scribes in Jerusalem, they're four hours away. Wouldn't that be something you would want to do? In fact, if someone had came to me and asked, this is all hypothetical, what is the time and place of Jesus' second coming? Well, we do have ideas about where he'll come, but... Let's assume that I was able to search the scriptures and find the exact answer, which we know we can't. But if I could, I would plan to meet him when he came. I would make my preparations to go meet him when he came. I want to receive him as king, right? Isn't that what the song is about? Let earth receive her king. Because if it is written in the scriptures, I believe them when they speak. And I love the Lord. I want to be there when he comes. But not these men. Which shows us that apart from a genuine love for God, The true meaning of Christmas and all of the truths of scripture just become knowledge without understanding that puffs up a person's heart. Which brings us to the second interesting thing about Matthew's scripture reference. So as a reminder, Herod's question was very specific. Where is the Christ to be born? It's about the location of the king's birth. And writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in this uh, quotation that he's going to provide for us, he combines two Old Testament texts that are not only going to show us the fulfillment of where the Messiah would be born, 
but also proclaim who the Messiah would be. So let's start with the where. The first three lines of verse 6, if you have it in your Bible, maybe it's set off from the text. I have the ESV, it's set off a little bit. This isn't a a direct uh, quote, it's it's sort of a combination. But anyway, the first three lines are taken from Micah 5.2, which did tell us that the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed ruler, would be born in Bethlehem, which we see fulfilled in the birth of Christ in chapter 1 and here in verse 1, as well as in the answer that the chief priests and scribes give in verse 5. But then... In the very last line of verse 6, Matthew includes a different Old Testament reference that comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 5, which tells us a little bit about who the Messiah would be, this ruler. Matthew shows that this ruler would not be an evil ruler like King Herod or some some of the rulers that Israel had had in the past. No, rather he would rule by faithfully shepherding God's people. Look at that again. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 34, you can read it on your own, show us how deeply God cares about the shepherding of his people. Which is why it also shouldn't come to a surprise to us that King David, a man after God's own heart, was a shepherd before he was anointed king over Israel. Listen to how Psalm 78 recounts, summarizes this for us. Psalm 78. He, that is God, chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So the people of Israel are God's inheritance. He loves them. They're his treasure. He takes the shepherding very seriously. With an upright heart, he, that's David, shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So to wrap up Matthew's Old Testament reference here, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he would be a good shepherd over God's people. Which is why when we get to passages like John 10, the good shepherd... It just gives us more evidence that Jesus is, in fact, God's king, the king that God said he would be. And now we can look at Herod's response. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, if we were to play a word association game, and I said to you, I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind, the first word that comes to your mind, I'm going to give you a word and you respond. And if I said that word was secret, what would you say? The, the first thing that came to my mind was hide, as in a secret hiding place, as in something you don't want anyone else to see or a place where people can't find you, right? And then the second word I thought of was harmful, because secrets, as you know, often cause tremendous harm to people when things have been hidden, right? So harmful, and if you had a different word, I heard Paige shout out a word, uh, it likely would still illustrate my point, and that is that by this secret meeting, Herod reveals that he's up to no good. It doesn't happen in the broad daylight for people to see where there's accountability. No, it happens behind closed doors where people cannot know about it. So he calls the wise men for a secret meeting. And the purpose of the gathering is very specific. I want to know the time of when the star appeared. Tell me exactly when this star rose. I want the date and the time that you saw it to mark the birth of this new king. And then once he had the information he needed, he proceeds to give them two commands. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So a couple of things we want to consider here. First, it is clear from the general context here that Herod had no intention of worshiping the Lord Jesus. When Herod heard that the kings of the Jew had been, the king of the Jews had been born, his response was not joy, but deep, terrifying fear. He was not excited. And then only a few verses after our passage, 
Matthew is going to recount the horrific events that happened after Herod's secret meeting. The angel would tell Joseph that you need to take the baby and flee. Herod will then realize that the wise men were not going to return to him, and it will say later in chapter 2 that he slaughtered every male child in the region that was two years old and under according to the time when the star rose. That was his purpose, destruction. And this reality actually hits my family particularly hard at the season of life as my wife and I currently have a two-year-old boy and a five-month-old boy. If we had lived during this time, we would have lost both of our babies. And as my wife and I were talking about this text and, and just sort of reflecting on the gravity of this man's hatred for Christ, she made perhaps the best observation that you will hear in this message today. And that is this, that King Jesus came to earth to save people like King Herod. Think about that for a moment. Because of sin, every person who has ever lived either is presently or was at one time an enemy of God. Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And what was God's plan when he looked down from heaven at a world full of his enemies? To blow it up? It says that he lovingly gave the world the undeserving, worthless world, the most precious gift of his son, while they were rebellious, sinful enemies, so that all, believe, uh, that, all that who believe in him might perish, uh, might not perish but have eternal life. And while we have no indication that Herod repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures are filled with God's great, unbelievable mercy towards unworthy sinners, some of who were kings. Listen to these. King Manasseh who did more evil than the pagan nations the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar, who demanded to be worshipped as a god and lifted up his heart against heaven. And even King David, who despite his heart for God, fell into adultery and murder. These kings were humbled by God's mighty hand and came to know him as the one true God. And the promise remains today. Jesus came to save sinners who humbly submit to his authority and worship him as king. Which brings us to the final observation here. And that is, despite his ill intent, Herod plays a critical role in the wise men finding the Christ child. You'll remember, when they made it to Jerusalem, these wise men, they didn't know where the Christ was. Where is he? Where, we don't know where he is. Can you show us the location? And guess who does? King Herod. Despite his evil intentions, God providentially uses Herod to reveal the location of Jesus' birth to these wise men so that they can not only find him, but worship him. Which causes me to say with Paul, Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his inscrutable ways. Which brings us back to the final point on your bulletin. Point three, God reveals his king to the world through a, that's right, you guessed it, a star. You see what I did there? After taking a few verses off, our star is ready for an epic comeback. Take a look at this. Verses 9 and 10. Star comes right back. Verse 9. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look at the response of the wise men. Isn't this great? The star that had brought them all of these months from the east now 
personally delivers them to the Christ child right in the location where he was. And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Actually, in the Greek text, the Greek text, this is how it sounds. He gives you just four words in a row. They rejoiced, joy, great, exceedingly. It's so that you won't miss it. This is a joyful moment to celebrate. It was a beautiful thing to behold. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. If you'll recall, the second goal for this morning was to respond to God's revelation of his king with worship. And this verse is going to help us understand the posture that a person must have for proper worship of the king. You may be familiar with the word here for worship. It means to fall prostrate, namely to fall down on your knees, lower your face to the ground as you adore and behold and praise and honor someone who is superior to you. And at this point, we see that the wise men do exactly that. They take this posture before the Christ child, joyfully, face down, with great joy for the privilege of being in his presence and giving him the honor that he is due. So that's one aspect of worship. But when you look at other instances of how this word is used throughout Matthew's gospel, it also expresses a posture of desperation and humble reliance upon Jesus as the only one who can provide hope in a hopeless situation. Chapter 8, verse 2. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Chapter 9, 18. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Chapter 15, speaking of the Canaanite woman. But she came and knelt down before him, saying, Lord, help me. To properly worship the king, a person's posture before him must be joyful, Humble, respectful, and recognize that he is the only one who can deliver. So we look back to verse 11 here. They worship him, and then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts, probably the reason why they think there were three kings, just one per gift. That's an easy, that's an easy structure. Um, but these were just valuable gifts, gifts worthy of royal tribute. Which brings us to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So despite all Herod's finite calculations, God supernaturally preserves the life of his king from harm. And what a beautiful reminder that God is sovereign over his plan of redemption. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. It has been fixed from eternity past. And it will end exactly as he planned it to the very exact detail. But with that said, we know from other Old Testament prophecies that God's king would eventually have to die in order to save sinners from their sins. And so while the life of the newborn king of the Jews was preserved in our immediate context, Matthew also faithfully records his final hours at the end of his gospel account. Chapter 27. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Verse 27, then the soldiers and the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots and they sat down and kept watch over him there and over his head, they put the charge against him. The very same charge that the wise men came to see. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Verse 41, So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. 
He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Herod, like the enemies of Christ, would have rejoiced to see the life of Jesus cut off from the earth. But Christ's death was not a sign of his defeat. In fact, it was just the precursor to his great victory. Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, conquering death, the father definitively proved to the world that he was not finished revealing his king so that he might be worshipped. In conclusion, God revealed his king to the world through a star that shone as far as the east and through the scriptures that were written hundreds of years before he was born. And if you were to continue through Matthew's gospel, you would see that God reveals his king to the world in many other ways, through dreams, through angels, through a voice crying out in the wilderness, through his own audible voice spoken from heaven, and most importantly, through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the king himself. And so our first goal this Christmas season, behold God's revelation of his king. Open the scriptures and see for yourself as a gift God's glorious revelation of his majestic son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of the universe to whom all things are due. That's the first thing we need to do. And maybe you are here today or you're listening to this message and you're hearing about God's king for the first time. That happens sometime at Christmas. You're hearing about God's king for the first time. Or maybe you have been hearing about Jesus your whole life and you're still trying to put the pieces together like some of the disciples after he appeared to them as the risen savior in Matthew 28. They doubted. Who is this king? In either case, this is where you must begin. Begin by beholding God's revelation of his king in scripture and believe that what he says is true for the exhortation of Psalm 2 still stands. Kiss the son, God's chosen king, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Which brings us to our second goal, which is giving the king of the Jews the worship that he deserves. And in order to do that properly, we need at least two things. The first thing, as we've said, we need a humble, dependent posture before the king, recognizing that he is the savior, we need a savior, and that he alone is qualified and gracious to save. That's the first thing. But second, we need to consider one last way that God reveals his king to the world. And that is that God reveals his king to the world through his people. In his infinite wisdom and mercy, God calls people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he gives to them the task of proclaiming the good news about his king. Which is why Matthew, who wrote a whole gospel about the revelation of God's king, ends it with the Great Commission. Which says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So as an encouragement this morning, a final encouragement to those who believe, in this Christmas season and beyond, we will close with one last passage of scripture that should motivate our hearts to take part in God's revelation of his king by proclaiming him to the world so that he might be worshipped. And in God's providence, it is the same text that Peter read in his sermon without him and I talking about it. 
Psalm 96, just listen. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and his people in faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the gracious revelation of your king that by beholding his glory we might come to his throne and that we might recognize our great need of a savior from our sin and that we might give to him the honor that he is due and to ask him for forgiveness and to plead with him to take us into his family and by his grace the promise of God stands that he will take all who believe in him and keep them from perishing eternally and he will give them the gift of eternal life and bring them gloriously into his forever kingdom to stand before his throne and to fall at his feet and to worship him forever and ever and ever and all God's people said Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.